0: Hello, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, third service, you really sing well. I just want you to know that you really do. I don't know if it's the mix of us or what it is, but you really sing well. So that's really encouraging. Boy, beautiful weather, huh? Just gorgeous. Boy, when it works the way God engineered it, it's a fabulous deal. That's a cool thing. All right, so what I'd like you to do this morning is take your Bibles. If you're new or visiting, hey, we just want to say welcome. We hope it feels like family. We hope you're encouraged in Jesus this morning. But take your Bibles, open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, or take your iPad or your phone and open up there. And then once you get that, would you take your Bible, put your finger in it, close it. Take your iPad or your phone and turn it upside down, all right? I want to see this morning if I can get you to try and imagine something and try to come to grips with the emotional intensity of it, and then we'll see how that plays back for us this morning. But what I want you to uh, think about this morning um, is instead of being here in Mill Creek at Norfolk, like we are, I want you to imagine that instead you are transported back to Thessalonica. Like, poof, 2,000 years, Right? Marty, Marty, you just have to hit the wire precisely at 88 miles an hour. Everything will be fine. Appreciate you knew what that was. (laughs) You're now part of a Roman colony, and you are sitting here in your togas. It is not June 15th or June 7th, 2015. It is now June AD 49. In that, you're a Christian. You have come to Christ, you have heard the story of Jesus dying in Jerusalem on the cross and of his resurrection from the dead and you have come to fully place your trust in that finished work on the cross for your sins and you've come to know him as Lord and Savior. That's a fabulous thing. Turned your world upside down, all right? Things look completely different. But also in that, a number of problems have have arisen and you've come under pressure, distinct pressure, just because of that and there's persecutions and a lot of hard things have happened. And so you're trying to come to grips with how all this can be so good and so bad all at the same time. And in the midst of looking around your world, A.D. 49, in your toga, right, and you're watching uh, what's going on, you are absolutely convinced that what Paul has told you is true and that Jesus is going to be coming back, and he's going to be coming back uh, imminently soon. You can see the signs all around you. They're everywhere. Rome is corrupt as a government as, and as a nation. Sexual immorality is rampant and being chased after and swallowed. Uh, persecution is broken out, like we said, and the pressure is huge. And uh, you're pretty smart. You're pretty intuitional. And you can just sense that his return is around the corner, like right there. So the thought comes to you, Well, there's no need to keep doing all these practical everyday things. None of this is going to matter when he returns anyways. Why save? Why plan? Why even go to work? You know, let's just instead be spiritual. Why don't we go sit out on this hill for a while and just wait for his return? I mean, after all, didn't Jesus himself say, hey, will anybody even be watching or looking for when I return? And you say, yes. I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be on the hill watching for you because I know you're coming back at any minute and we're going to be the first ones to greet you. Now pause. Stop that. And suddenly you get your flux capacitor and you are back to here at Northview. It's June 2015 and you're back in Mill Creek. As you are back here, instead of you being transported back to Thessalonica, the Thessalonians are transported here this morning. They fill up the chairs next to you in their togas, and they look a little weird. And you're looking around, and it's my job and your job this morning to fill them in on what has gone on since that day that they went and sat out on that hill when they were expecting Jesus to come back in their lifetime. Can you imagine their reaction? Do you think they'd be shocked or amazed? I mean, like, what is that? Whoa, candles that don't burn the roof down. Trippy. They go outside, nice horses, weird, you know? Can you imagine what this would look like? And how would they wrestle with the fact that you're trying to explain to them that since they went and sat on that hill, 2,000 years of history has rolled out and you're trying to give them an update on the last 1,500. Can you imagine the mind-boggling perspective it would be for a Thessalonian to try to come to grips with God's timing was a little bit different than what they thought? That's what we're going to look at this morning. What would you think they would think of their then, at that time, so sure prediction that Jesus would return in their lifetimes, that it was just around the corner. Would it not look more than a little foolish to them if they could sit in one of these chairs this morning? And would they have any concept or even any capacity to realize all that Jesus had ever done over the last 2,000 years? Electricity? What is that? I mean, think about that context in that setting. This is where we're going to be picking up the story of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians today. What I've just described to you, the backdrop, is going to be um, where we're going to roll. He's basically calling them out on this chapter. It's a rebuke. And you say, a rebuke of what or on what? Well, some of them basically took the attitude that Jesus' return was right around the corner, so let's go sit on a hill and wait for him. And that's what they did. And they let go of their home responsibilities and their job responsibilities, and they went and sat out there. And by the way, since we're out here being spiritual, the rest of you who are kind of carnal and pagan, you can take care and meet our needs because we're watching for you. Right? And so... Paul spends this whole chapter in really what amounts to a pretty good rebuke addressing this issue. And I want to try and tie that in together with our uh, day and the the way we think in the present, see if we can make a a connect with it. Would you join me in prayer as we go this morning? Lord, as we come this morning, we also are in uh, rampant anticipation of when your turn would be. And uh, we are looking for it with joy, but also... Uh, There's much speculation in our world and our culture, and it puts a lot of things in motion, some that are really good, some that are probably not so good. And as we're here this morning as we wrestle with this, this was the very topic that the Thessalonians were uh, wrestling with, and Paul ushers a a rebuke to them to get back to what you've asked them to do. And I pray this morning we can make that connect. Lord, really not we, you. I'm hoping you will connect it for my friends this morning in a way that as they look at their world, they will uh, practically cooperate with you with the stuff we've talked about. And I give that to you with great hope and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So now open your Bibles again. Turn your phones up and your iPads up and wherever you're working with. And we'll start with, we're in chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 6. And it says this, it's the... The title of this chapter uh, in my Bible was Warning Against Idleness, and I thought that was so appropriate that I just kept it. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is, working, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul says, hey, we had a right as apostles. We came and brought you the word of God. We could have taken that right and had you meet our needs, but we didn't do that. And the reason we didn't do that is because we knew you were going to be a very important church and that many churches were going to follow the pattern or model they saw in you. So we thought it would be really important for us to model for you what you have to model for others. That's what he's saying right there. And so the basic problem he was trying to address was people had stopped caring about um, their, their responsibilities. A number of them quit their jobs. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm just not going to show up tomorrow. Oh, cool. All right? Paul labels it as those who are walking in idleness. It's a very specific term. So here's the problem, though, for those who are walking in idleness. What happens when what you think is going to happen doesn't happen? You ever planned, had a big plan, maybe a birthday party, maybe uh, you know you had a new job opportunity or whatever kind of thing, uh, big vacation or something like that, and you planned it and was going to plan it, and then it didn't happen, right? If that event that you plan to put that much energy into doesn't happen, what suddenly do you do, right? Uh, I got a lot of time on my hands all of a sudden. And as the old saying goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And when that happens, suddenly I can tend to get into trouble spiritually because I'm not paying attention anymore. I'm goofing off. And so then I start dabbling in things I shouldn't be dabbling in, and I get knocked off course. And Paul is basically saying, knock it off. Get back to what you were supposed to be doing. Get back to what your responsibilities are. What is it that God called you to? What is your job? Paul says, remember that what we taught you. Remember our example. Remember how we worked among you. He said, you were with us. You watched us. We were working. Uh, We would go and do worship and stuff there. But then we went and did our jobs. And yeah, a lot of you came and talked to us. And in that uh, day and era, you had trades. Right? And people did trades and they had apprenticeships, and as they apprenticed, they taught as they apprenticed and as they did the trade. Uh, that was true when I grew up on a farm. As you were bailing hair stuff, uh, the guys would, you walked along with the older guys and they taught you stuff. That's not so true and not as easy today because we have video games, right? Not so easy to apprentice and mentor when you're doing video games. And so it's a, it's a challenge for us today as we, as we sit here. But most of the discipling took place as they were working. And Paul said, You saw us work. You saw us provide for our needs. And Paul is sternly challenging this idea that they could abandon their responsibilities to the point of saying they shouldn't even associate with those who are lollygagging around and claiming to be Christians. He says, if you get a brother and they're just walking around in idleness, don't even associate with them. We'll go farther along and see what he says about it. But he says, don't even hang out with them. Now, that's pretty stern. We're not used to that. That's, we'd say, harsh. But there was a reason for it. Let's walk a little farther. In verses 9 and 10, it says, It is not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You can fiddle-faddle around for a while, but after a while you start getting hungry. If the rule on the table is you don't eat till you work, Pretty soon you start figuring out I better start working if I want to eat, and so Paul uses this age-old street wisdom that is both biblical and practical, and says, "Here's the rule I lay down for the church: If you don't work, you don't eat." All right, and in that day and age, many depended on that. Anyone, uh, by the way, this is built into our heritage. Anybody know? Uh, go back to your high school history, right? What group instituted this as part of their core community principles in American history? Yeah, the pilgrims, right? The Puritans. When they came over, the lesson on the ground was you don't work, you don't eat. And we call it the Puritan work ethic. And it was very practical. When they first arrived in this country, they simply didn't have the option if they wanted to survive. There wasn't such a thing as laziness or sloth or sleeping in or I don't feel like it. Those were not only not tolerated, they weren't uh, part of the language, right? They didn't ask you if you felt like working. They simply said, we all are going to work, and then if we all work, we all hopefully will get to eat. If you wanted to eat, then you worked. And Paul is pulling heavily from this, from the Old Testament, his Old Testament knowledge on this, especially from the book of Proverbs. And I I wanted to look at, uh, in Proverbs, it's called the sluggard. Okay, this busybody, lazy person is called a sluggard. And I want to take a look with you, a brief survey. Um, You can turn if you want. It will also be up on the screen. But Proverbs 6 says this. Go to the ant, O slugger, and consider her ways. Be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, when Scripture says this, it is not saying it's wrong for a good night's sleep. It's not even saying it's wrong to take a nap. All right? Hallelujah, amen, be free to that. Okay? What it's talking about is a lifestyle, an attitude that is uh, caught in idleness, that is caught in not moving forward or doing what you're responsible uh, to do. Proverbs 24:30 um, adds to this, or parallels this one. It says, "I passed by the field of a sluggard by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles. And its stone wall was broken down. And this this even happens today, right? This happens all the time. And you get really irritated with it when it does. You say, what are you talking about? This When you walk into your neighborhood, when you drive into your neighborhood, and there's that one neighbor that won't mow their lawn, right? There's that one neighbor who leaves trash hanging out on the... There's that one neighbor whose house is falling apart, and would they just please clean it up? Have you ever heard of paint, buddy? That's a good cuts up. You should use some, right? And you want to just march out of your car, park it, get up to the door, knock on the door, and go, would you mow your grass? We live in uh, our little place, and um, it's the lawns are this big. How hard is it to mow? Bah, you know, come on. Seriously, the grass is that high? Now, I know you think that. You know how I know you think that? I think that when I drive in my development. Is it that pick and hard to mow a lawn that's supposed to stand big? I mow four of my neighbor's lawns just because I like doing it. You can't mow one? What is going on? It drives me crazy. Right? And this is what uh, the Proverbs are talking about. In Proverbs, the guy writes, says, then, then I saw, I watched this, and I considered, and he said, I looked, and I received some instruction says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Many times when we lay down and are slacking, it's not because we don't know uh, what we're supposed to do. We just don't want to get started. Right? You ever taken on one of those three-minute home projects that three months later? Right? And you're smart enough now. You're over 40. You've tried a couple of those. And so you're thinking, oh. Do I even want to start that, right? And you come up with a million reasons why you should, but inside you're being pushed. You know you should do it, right? You ever have those kind of assignments? That's what this is, is talking about here. And it says, if we don't, then our poverty comes upon us like an arm in. Proverbs twenty six fourteen says, As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. <laughs> Uh, right. This is hard work. Scripture has a whole picture for a sluggard. I want to walk through what it talks about. In Proverbs 10, 26, it talks about the sluggard's reliability. It says, like vinegar to the teeth or smoke to the eye, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Now, I wouldn't... uh, Advocate you trying vinegar on the teeth, all right? But have you ever sat by a campfire and the smoke came right at you, right? Smoke follows beauty. And what is that like when you are in the direct line of the smoke coming at you, right? And your eyes are stinging. And it says that's what it's like if you send a sluggard on a job. You ever had a job that you needed done and the person you hired didn't show up, right? Or they show up and they do such a lousy job you're like are you kidding me that you consider that worth me paying you for that's what this is talking about it says it it's great it it's an absolute irritation they aren't reliable they can't be relied on and they just irritate your soul because they don't follow through they make great promises but they don't follow through uh, the sluggard, uh, also, Scripture says, has great cravings, uh, but is really frustrated. Proverbs 13, 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. In other words, Scripture applauds a diligent person. It says that person is conscientious, that person is careful, and that cur- person just keeps moving along, doing the things that they're supposed to do. The sluggard doesn't. But the sluggard has great cravings. I want this, I want that, uh, and but gets nothing. And you can see that um, in this generation of American kids. Um, When you watch TV these days, right? Look at the shows. Everybody's got a beautiful, beautiful home. Everybody, or they got upscale apartment. They have really nice cars. They seem to have all kinds of money and all kinds of time to walk around and talk with their friends. Have you ever asked yourself during those shows, what do they do for work? I never see them go to work. And we've raised an entire generation that has said, this is owed me. This, I should be giving it to it because I'm cool. And we call it an entitlement mentality. And it's become rampant in our culture because we they feel like they should have it. And that is what scripture says are the cravings of a sluggard. They want to have the stuff, but they don't want to put any work in to get the stuff. And then those who work hard to get the stuff, it's called unfair, and it should be redistributed so that I get the stuff, even though I've done nothing and they've done everything, because it's not, quote-unquote, fair. Scripture calls that sluggard. All right? Let's just be really clear on what that what that is. Um, the sluggard's attitude. It says the sluggard... In Proverbs nineteen twenty four, sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it to his mouth. It's like, ugh, 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 oh, such hard work, All right? I don't know if I can lift my hand to get another morsel to my mouth. And he's saying, oh, that's funny, that's weird. Nobody would ever do that. Sure, we do all the time. A lot of us, we've been reading through the Bible this year, right? You're going, oh, you're meddling. Yes, this is the meddling sermon. Hello, I'm walking right into your front porch, all right? And we, we've read and we've probably done pretty well and then we probably hit a stretcher. We've absolutely biffed it, okay? What do we say to ourselves? Well, I blew it, so I'm not going to read anymore. Oh, that's a brilliant plan for the year. You will be really spiritual by the end of the year, close to God. You'll know his voice and you will be walking just like all the people who read diligently through the year. Ah, not long. Thanks for playing, right? What should you do? You should pick the book up and open it. What a concept. Start over. Awesome. Oh, that's so hard. I'm so far behind. I'll never catch up. That is the attitude of a slugger. Get over it, all right? Open the book, read it, get back started, get back on track. You will catch up. Trust me, you'll make it. Nobody's laughing at that. Come on, hello. All right, the sluggard's worth ethic, all right? Proverbs 24. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Oh, that's a great one, right? What is that saying? There are times and opportunities God gives you to do something and you have to do them within those opportunities because there's no guarantee or promise that that opportunity is going to happen over here. If I was talking to a guy today. He said, you know, when you have cancer, you learn that it's not forever. And therefore, you must take the opportunities as they come along because they may not come along again. We do this all the time in our work. You ever have a window where you can get a job done and you get and you fritter it away and then you, you're collapsed and you're trying to get it all pushed together and you're a red line? I do that with sermons. Hello? Okay? Anybody else do that in their line of work? Oh, I could get this done. Ah right? And then I got to scream and, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And the, here the scripture says the sluggard is doesn't plow. Then he goes and Looks at the field and goes, gee, I wonder why there's no crops. I can't figure it out. This is amazing. There's nothing here. Duh. Hello. All right. He wastes his time, doesn't get to the task at hand, and then wonders why he has nothing. Here's what the sluggard says, though. Here's the excuse to it. The sluggard's excuse. Sluggard says, well, I would have got it done, but there's a lion outside. That's dangerous out there. Uh, I, I could be killed in the streets. Do you realize what you're sending me out into? I, are, are you kidding me? I can't go out there. It's dangerous. I, I can't do that job. My hands would get dirty. I might get hurt. I don't know how many times that I've had people come into my office and they say, Oh, my gosh, I've lost my job. I can't get anything. I don't know what to do. And I said, Well, do you really want to know what to do? And they go, Yeah. I said, Okay, well, why don't you go to McDonald's and apply? And the look I get is, you would expect me to go to McDonald's? Do you know who I am? Do you know how far above I am of that? I will not lower myself to work at McDonald's. I said, well, dude, there's a basic principle. You don't work, you don't eat. Do you want your family to eat or do you want to work? Oh, I'm not working there. Okay? And that is the attitude you run into with a lot of people. I'm not going to do that job. You you can't make me do that job. And here's what's really behind that. Proverbs 26:16, I think, is incredibly insightful. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly or discreetly. In other words, the sluggard really believes he's smarter than you. And he's going to come and ask you for advice because it's the polite and Christian spiritual thing to do. But really, he's already weighed you and doesn't like your advice. I remember a time when uh, there was a guy, this is a long time ago, there was a guy in the church and he was having a hard time. He had lost his job and uh, he had a car that was breaking down and, um, you know, he had an opportunity to go for an interview. And so I, me and another buddy, a guy named John Baumgartner, uh, he was a pretty good mechanic. I said, Hey, what do you think? You think we could tune up his car for him? John said, Yeah. So he asked the guy and he opened the hood and looked around, he said, Steve, run to the store, get me some spark plugs, get me some wires for this car, da, 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 give me some points, right? Back in the day of points, right? And uh, you're going, points on the car? Yeah, this is not real estate, okay, points. And uh, and so I ran to the store and got him and this guy pulled into John's yard and kind of burping and chugging and smoking his way into the garage, right? And it gets in, <laughs> boom, car stops. And so we open, and John looks, he says, okay, I think we can help you. And so I said, well, I'll get the parts. So I ran over to the bench, And I got the parts and I grabbed the parts and I came over and I had them like this. And the guy looked at me and he went, oh, I don't use those kind of parts in my car. Well, now, I won't tell you what I did say. I won't tell you what I was thinking, in other words. But what he said was, "I, I only use such and such a parts in my car. And I'm holding the parts and I'm looking and I'm thinking, that's my money in these parts and I'm looking in your car and those parts you say aren't in your car. So I had some Wisconsin expressions in my mind that probably I'm guilty and need to repent of. And I, I kind of was tongue-tied and John said, well, you know, this is on our money and, and this is what we could do. And would, it, would you mind if we put these in so we could get your car running so you could go for that interview? And then later when you get the job and you get money, you could put in the parts that you would like? And he went, no, I will not put those parts in my car. And he got back in the car and chugged and smoked his way back out the driveway and down the road. I went, you've got to be kidding me, right? The sluggard thinks they're wise and they're not open to instruction or correction. And this is what Paul was kind of fighting um, in the Thessalonian church. By the way, just as an interesting aside, how many in our country today are not willing to work? Right? How many are not willing? To work? I get people come in all the time and, and they're whining. Oh, this life is hard. This is tough. This is... I said, okay, stop for a second. Do you know what you're supposed to do? What do you mean? Well, what's your job? I mean, what is it you're supposed to do? Well, this and this and this. Are you doing that? No. Well, why don't you do that? And, and then they, they start complaining, and I go, look, stop. Okay? In my finer moments, I use really great Christianese and blessed words of the Holy Spirit, and I say, would you shut up? <laughs> look, here's the thing, do your job. I don't care about all these. Go back and do what you're supposed to do. Shut up and go do your job. If you just did that, you would put all kinds of things in place and all kinds of good things would happen. If you just did what you were supposed to do and instead of complaining about all the things you don't have and just did what God gave you to do, stuff would roll out. And they look at me like I'm an absolute Cro-Magnon Choglodyte, came out of some tunnel somewhere, like you expect me to work? I'm going, yeah, I do which is probably why there's a lot of empty seats in our church. All right. Why is Paul so strong on this? What, what What is he getting at? He understands very clearly this isn't just a practical issue. This is a spiritual issue. You get all these people sitting on the hill, and they're all sitting there, and they won't work, and they all think they're better, and they're they're uh, more spiritual than other people, and then all of a sudden they all going to start talking and, and busy about it, and all of a sudden a lot of trouble is going to break out. Look at what he says. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. And that idea there of walk in idleness is not that you stop and take a break. Don't let the devil run that over on you. We're not talking about appropriate breaks, appropriate naps, good night's sleep. That's not what we're talking about. Talking about this is the course or the path of your life. Just like you walk around Green Lake or you walk on the Burke-Gilman Trail. This is the way you walk. And the way they walk is walking in idleness. They're not busy at work, but busy bodies. This is the key sentence in the whole chapter. For we hear some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This issue of being a busybody was a problem uh, back then in the Thessalonian church, and it's a problem today in the church in America. I looked up busybody just because I thought it would be fun. And uh, here's Webster's busybody, a person who pries into other people's affairs, a meddler. You ever have somebody who is asking all these questions? You know, why are you asking me these questions? What are, what are you trying to get at? What are you trying? To... That's what it's talking about. It's talking about a meddler. The idea here is one who minds others for information and then uses it as leverage or collateral. It is their currency, so to speak. And Scripture ties that to idleness uh, almost all the time. In other words, the whole issue of gossip, slander, um, uh, this being a busybody, being a meddler, are all tied together um, with the attitude of being a sluggard. Gossip has always been a problem. And idleness of hands and minds only compounds the problem. And Paul saw it for how dangerous it was. He knew there was going to be a tendency... For people to slack. And he wanted to aim them at the highest common denominator, not the lowest. Alright? And and so he pointed them and, and said to them, as he, he's saying, Now such persons we command and encourage the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. There were people who were trying to get off on the dole even back then, and Paul was saying they were not going to be an example of that. He knew that no good would come out of it. And if you think if it was bad then, think about today. We have entire industries, entire industries that are completely dedicated to the purpose of being busybodies. I won't name them, but I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know wh- who or what they are. Just walk through any grocery store, just watch TV, just go on the Internet, and they're all over the place. We've got magazines, websites, TV shows, blogs that are dedicated for the sole purpose of being busybodies. They master in the art of meddling in other people's lives and business. I absolutely cringe for people who run for political office these days because we now not only have magazines and all that stuff, we have social media. And social media can, if you picked a booger in third grade, they know. All right. And I mean, ask yourself what, what person can survive that kind of scrutiny? What kind of person can go into a political process and not have the whole thing picked apart if they want to pick it apart? Candidates, if you think the last several campaigns, they can be absolutely destroyed. And the problem is we aren't working with issues anymore. We aren't working, we're fear-mongering and we're busybodying, and we're, we're slandering and we're doing that kind of stuff. It's an atrocious process. It's a horrible wreck for our country. It's no good at all, and I doubt it will ever stop. That's the sad part, Right? But that is bad in politics. If it's bad in politics, it's even worse in the church. Many of you come out of different church backgrounds. How many church splits came because there was a busybody in the church that started rumor or innuendo about something and it ended up splitting the church in half? It's deadly within the fabric of the church. Satan knows how to do that. And if you have a problem with that, stop, please today. See it as something serious before the Lord and stop being a busybody. Stop meddling in other people's business. Do your job. Do what Jesus gave you to do. Work with that. Too many people with too much time on their hands is not a good thing and if you're not working, you've got too much time on your hands. Notice in this passage it is not an ask It is a command. Paul says, I command you. I, as the apostle in the Lord, the apostle to the Gentile church, I command you in this. Now, you know, he does say it's an encouragement, but it's a command nonetheless. He's not asking them. He's telling them. So this isn't a great ask or suggestion. Paul's laying this out in the most serious possibility, and there's very few times he commands like that. They are to do their work. And notice the adjective that's added to They are to do their work what? Quietly. That doesn't mean you work quietly so you don't make any noise. That means quietly zip the lip. Loose lips sink ships. Scripture says with many words there's no lack of sin. Uh, I, I know that uh, total truth because I live or die by my tongue. I, my tongue is my greatest asset. My tongue is my worst enemy. Right, And I live in a world of words. That. Yeah. Paul saying, do your work quietly. There's stuff you don't have to talk about. Seal it. Let the Lord take care of it. Zip the lip. Do your job unto the Lord Jesus Christ and don't gossip while you're doing it. Verses 13 and 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that they may be ashamed. Do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. Paul says if, if you're hanging out in the Christian life and there's someone who's always a negative nally, always a fault finder, always a busybody, uh, dredging up information to other people, you tell them, stop. You need to stop or I'm not going to hang out with you. Because that isn't right. And when God hits you with lightning, I don't want to be standing next to you and get hit too. Right? Knock it off. And if they won't knock it off, Paul says, don't hang out with them. That's pretty serious. I mean, when's the last time that happened in the American church? That's different than the way we would usually um, go at that. It says, don't regard them as an enemy. In other words, don't uh, treat them evilly, but warn them as a brother. It says, don't grow weary in doing good. What's the, you ever get tired in your job? You ever look at your life and say, I'm doing ministry. thing? What is this accomplishing? Is this getting anywhere? And Paul's saying, don't grow weary of doing good. Stay with it. Stay diligent. Don't be a slugger. So as we, as we come to communion this morning, in both books, in First and Second Thessalonians, in both books we've talked about the need to be steadfast, that the major theme was to be steadfast and to stand firm in the faith. And we've looked at that, Paul amplified it uh, even more in Second Thessalonians as we began in the first chapters there. Uh, we've talked about how they had to face persecution. It was called affliction in these books. Affliction is usually something that picks you, you don't pick it. And in the midst of that, he's, at, he's encouraging them how to handle it and we may have to do that in the near future as well. We've never been under persecution or affliction really in the American church. There's been pockets of it and shades of it, but never as an entire body have we come under it. And that, that may change. We may have to be a group of people that learns how to function in the midst of persecution and affliction. And that doesn't mean God went anywhere. might mean he's closer to us than he's ever been. But if we have this attitude of it's too hard, we're never going to make it. And we have to toughen up somewhat, I think. We've talked about the coming apostasy. And where's that apostasy going to happen? Within the church. And we've talked about the man of lawlessness that will usher in the day of the Lord. And there's so much speculation. Is that now? Is that happening? And a lot of people think that it is. A lot of people are laying out stuff that it is. And lastly, we've talked about the need to stay firmly locked to our calling, to do our job this morning as unto the Lord. What is your calling? What has Jesus called you to do? And are you doing it? And not only are you doing it, but are you doing it well? And I would add, not only are you doing it well, but are you doing it with joy? Is it a get-to or a have-to? Right? Because once it's a have-to, then you whine. And once you whine, then you start meddling. And the loop begins again. As we come to communion this morning, and we're speculating about the return of the Lord, and of course Thessalonians is big on that, um, just think if you were the Thessalonians, as you could see now, would you have dreamed that it would have stretched out 2,000 years? Could some of us dream that it would stretch out another 500? I don't think so. Most of us think it's going down a hell in a handbasket now within, you know, 20 years at most. Well, maybe, maybe not. Think about these things. As we come to communion, what I want to point out is that what all of this is encouraging to do is uh, pointing us back to stay close to Christ. Whether he comes now or comes later really isn't the issue. The issue is, are we being faithful with what he's asked us to do? Are we, go- are we manning our post? Are we reliable? Are we following through? Could Christ return soon? Yes, absolutely he could. If he does, hallelujah, it'd be great. Right? On the other hand, uh, uh, could he last a while? Could a great revival break out? Yes, we hope so. Amen. I've been praying that God would bring a revival that would make the Jesus re- revolution look like a puff of smoke. Right? There are millions and millions of teenagers and kids who don't even know Jesus as a word, as a name. They don't know who he is. Why would he be important? I, I want God to flip that on its ear that they all know it's important. Um, could both of these things happen at the same time? A well, very distinct possibility right? Persecution and revival all at the same point. Here's the point. Whether Jesus's return is near or far away, our eyes must be completely fixed on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. We can't be lax or slacking just because, quote unquote, nothing's happening. There's all kinds of things happening if we will pay attention and be diligent. Only he knows the timing. And we must occupy until He comes back for us. Right? That's the parable of the ten virgins. Go and read that again and you'll see that. We occupy well by letting Him occupy us. That He has His residence in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The way we occupy well is we let Him occupy us. And when He occupies us, then we are diligent for Him. And so today for communion... As I said, we're going to come forward. But before we do that, I want us to do an examination. So, would you just uh, close your eyes, please, and um, get by yourself with the Lord, uh, just for the sake of being able to track? When it comes to this this morning, have you been slack in your work? Just some earth, dirt kind of questions. Have you been slack in your work? Have you been a busybody? Have you been idle and not following through on the things the Lord has asked you to follow through on? Have you been so sure that Christ returns soon that you've kind of given yourself permission not to follow through? Paul tells us that when we come to communion, we should examine ourselves so that we can bring this stuff to the Lord and do that before we go to communion. And so what I'm going to ask you this morning is to walk up here and take some of the elements just like I'm going to do right now. But I want you to examine yourself this morning in light of what we've covered. And then when you feel ready, we'll walk up, take communion, hold it in your hand, and then we'll do communion together. Give yourself just a minute.